So last weekend, I participated in my very first Tough Mudder competition. You heard of these things? They happen all over the country. This one took place up in Mount Pleasant, North Carolina. But essentially, you run like 10.2 miles and complete around 22 obstacles involving a whole lot of mud. I've got some pictures of some of the obstacles and the challenge to show you, give you an idea of what this sort of looks like. This is, this is how it all starts. This challenge was called the Kiss of Mud. Makes sense, right? Kind of baptizes you into the whole experience. This next one, take a look at this. Maybe. We got it. There it is. Actually, slide down into this big bath water. It's like, it's, I mean, it's ice, not bath water. It's like a vat of, of ice water, right? And you have to go under this thing and over something else. You know what they call it? The Arctic Enema. Enough said, right? <laughs> Enough said. This next one's called the Funky Monkey. And you have to climb up these sort of elevated uh, monkey bars, grab a hold of this little swing thing, and then you finish by shimming across this pole. Now, here's a picture of me. Look at that face. That's misery right there, isn't it? Pure misery. What you got to understand is I'm gravitationally challenged. The earth does not like to let go of me, okay? But I am proud to admit I was about two feet away from finishing this, this challenge when I lost my grip and I fell into the, the mud pit, but I ended up slamming my face into the side of the mud pit. It actually bit through the side of my tongue. It's crazy. For like next couple of days, I, I talked really, really funny. Now, this is how it all finished. Hold this picture. Don't, don't move it yet. This is called electroshock therapy. Those little wires that you can barely see, they're all electrically charged. As you can tell by my response, I'm the guy in the red shirt. It's like I just got shot. You see me there? Now, going into this challenge, I was thinking, there's no way that this is going to, like, hurt, hurt. I mean, come on. They have to, like, keep it safe, right? There's no way it's going to hurt that bad. And so I was anticipating kind of like a really aggressive static electricity kind of shock. I was way wrong. I was way wrong. The first shock, it made me angry, like Incredible Hulk. Like I was about to tear something up. The second and third shock made me scared. And so this is what I did. <laughs> I love this picture. Where's Nick? If you're having a hard time seeing me, I'm right at the bottom down there. I am as flat as I could possibly get. Because what I saw was if I got low enough, I could actually crawl under the wires and then I wouldn't get shocked anymore. So I got so low, I could crawl under a closed door. It was amazing. Amazing. You know, I paid $100 for that. Seriously, by far the strangest thing I've ever spent $100 on. Now, I was talked into it more or less by my good friend, Nate Gibson. Some of you know Nate. He's on staff here. Many of you have run with Nate. Nate is a runner. This is what he does. He's a runner. Me, I'm a guy who runs on occasion, only when I'm being chased by something. I mean, Nate, he, he like runs for breakfast. It's what he does. And the few weeks leading up to the race, I was actually laid up with a back injury. I didn't get to run until the week of the race, and I could barely finish three miles. So the idea of running 10 miles was terrifying, terrifying. In fact, I try to come up with all sorts of excuses and ways to get out of it, but they wouldn't let me. You know how it felt? I was so grateful, though. I ended up running around eight miles out of the 10, which is the furthest I've run in a very long time. But you know how it felt across that finish line? I felt so grateful. One hand, it was over. But second, I was, I was really grateful for, for, like, the challenge of the whole thing, for the struggle of it. And this morning, I want to talk to you about flipping the lens on struggle. 
mean, struggle comes to us in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Unexpected tragedies that happened that we didn't see coming, that we weren't ready for, and that weren't necessarily our fault. Loved one passes away, maybe takes their own life. Maybe a life-altering injury, a diagnosis, a sickness. Or maybe a spouse, for some reason, decides to walk out on a marriage and abandon their whole family. What about that kind of struggle? Because right? it's one thing to flip the lens on sort of the normal, everyday crazy of life, right? To try and find the joy, the gift, the gratitude in the midst of the everyday. But what about the really hard stuff? How do we flip the lens on that? That's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to be in the book of Philippians if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. Book of Philippians. It's really where this whole thing began. And as we were working on this sermon series, kind of putting it together, we all decided we need to park in the book of Philippians. And here's why. Philippians was written by this guy named Paul. He wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament. And he's actually writing this particular letter from a Roman prison cell. And from different places in the letter, it becomes clear that he's actually staring his own death sentence in the face. He could be killed. We know that later on, eventually, he was killed. He was executed. So he's got that staring at him. But at the same time, when you read through this letter over and over and over again, you know, you know what he talks about? Joy. It shows up all over the place in the letter of Philippians, which tells me, and hopefully it tells you, joy is not circumstantial. Joy is not based on our circumstances. In fact, joy actually transcends our circumstances and even helps you and I to transform our circumstances. It's not something that happens to us, right? Joy is something we experience as we look at the world through a particular lens. Because one of the other words Paul loves to use in the letter of Philippians, it's this Greek word phronesis. And it means attitude. It means state of mind. It's our lens, it's the way in which we see the world. It's what we believe about God and how that helps us to translate our lives and the world around us. That's our phronesis. What I want you all to know more than anything, that how you and I navigate the struggle that comes our way, the difficult things that happen in life, has everything to do with our phronesis, with our lens, with what we believe about God in particular in the life that we live. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And I want y'all to do me a favor. When the message is over, don't leave. I see y'all sometimes. As soon as that final song starts, you're out the door. I get it, you wanna to get to Moe's or Cracker Barrel or whatever, but guess what, it's still gonna be there after worship. We've got something planned after worship that if you leave, you're gonna miss it. And I believe that there are some words that we have to do more than just simply hear them, we gotta experience them. Some messages that are that important, this is one of those. And we've created some space for us to actually respond. And I believe to, to encounter, to experience the good news of what I feel like I'm going to share with you this morning. So promise me, just this week, don't rush out of here. Stick around. I promise you won't regret it, okay? Did he make you sign a contract or something? You good? Philippians chapter 1. Look with me back at, uh, let's look at verse 13. Paul mentions here in the short passage, he mentions his chains twice. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. So Paul, once again, like I told you just a second ago, Paul is in a Roman prison right now. He's got chains on him. Now Roman prisons were a bit different 
than, than the prisons that we know today. On the one hand, for one, you weren't fed. They didn't feed you when you were in a Roman prison. You were completely dependent upon people on the outside, friends and family, to provide for all of your needs. It's one of the reasons why Paul is actually writing this letter. He's thanking this church that's located in the city of Philippi because they have sent someone to him with a large amount of money and the instructions to take care of whatever needs that he has. And so he's thanking them for that. One of the first things we can learn from Paul about flipping the lens on struggle is that you and I, we have to come to expect it. We have to anticipate it. You wanna know why Paul's in prison right now? Because of his faithfulness. His faithfulness to God, his allegiance to Jesus Christ and his refusal to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. First century, one of the common greetings when you'd pass somebody on the street, you know what it was? Caesar is Lord. They were fine with you worshiping other gods just as long as you acknowledged one thing, that Caesar was ultimately Lord. You read about Paul's writings, guess what one thing he's not willing to admit? There is a Lord, he's not sitting on a throne in a palace, he's reigning in heaven. Jesus is Lord. His refusal to acknowledge that is what has him in prison. And now he's been labeled as an enemy of the state and he's staring his own death right in the face. If we're gonna flip the lens on struggle, we gotta learn to expect it. The bottom line is life on this side of the resurrection, the struggle is real. It's real, it's gonna come our way. Here's a guy who's doing nothing but right and wrong still comes his way. Right? He's doing nothing but right, but wrong still comes our way. For some reason, we tend to buy into this faulty mentality that if you do A, B, and C, then, then this is gonna happen. Right? If you do everything right, cross your T's, dot your I's, then you're never gonna experience any difficulty or pain. That's a crock. Somebody better give me an amen on that. It's like you and I have been conditioned from all the books we read, the movies we watch, to believe that there is a sort of thing out there, this moment in our life, or this thing that we can do if we just get it right, if we just pray the prayer hard enough, if we mean it enough, if we have enough faith, then Jesus is gonna make sure nothing bad ever happens to us. That's what happens in the movies, right? We watch the characters struggle through all sorts of conflict, adversity, and struggle. But then we know eventually there's gonna be a climax to the movie, right? A climax is the point where all of the conflict is resolved. The bad stuff goes away. Roll the credits. We love those kind of stories. But if we're anything like real life, then what would happen like 15 minutes after the credits roll? Something else would come up, wouldn't it? That's life. I think it would be a very dangerous thing to live your life believing that there's some sort of moment or there's something we can do that will make sure that no struggle ever comes our way again, especially as it relates to God. Now, sadly, a lot of people came into the faith they bought into this bill of goods that wasn't true. Somebody told them, hey, if you say this prayer just right, you mean it enough, you have enough faith, then Jesus Christ is gonna make sure nothing bad ever happens to you. And then when something bad does happen to them, either they think, well, I must not have meant the prayer enough, I didn't have enough faith, or they think that God is angry at them, God has abandoned them, or even worse, they think they bought into something that doesn't work. And so they let it go. I think Paul would want you and I to know more than anything that a life of faithfulness, a life with God does not mean a life free of struggle, free of conflict. The hope that we have in Jesus isn't that bad things aren't gonna happen to us. The hope that you and I have in Jesus is that when they do, we don't have to fall apart. Could you imagine somebody like Paul doing an infomercial for Jesus? You know, infomercials like ShamWow, 
I'm talking about how many of you bought some of those? They're great. Imagine Paul doing like an infomercial for Jesus, trying to sell Jesus to the world. Hi, I'm Paul. I used to have respect and authority. People feared me. But then I tried to decide, I tried to just try Jesus. And since then, I've been on the run for my life. I've been beaten up, shipwrecked, bit, bitten by snakes, thrown in prison on multiple occasions. You too can try Jesus for three easy payments in 1995. I don't think many people would buy into that product, right? Man, flipping the lens on struggle begins with you and I coming to expect it, anticipate it. Because I think when we do, when that becomes our phronesis, the lens through which we see the world, then we begin to develop the resolve necessary to hold it together when it all falls apart. This is going to happen. I don't know about you, but one thing I've learned in 33 years of life is that stuff happens. It's like things are good right now, just wait. Just wait. Life changes. Things happen. It also brings me to another important point, though, about flipping the lens on struggle. Notice what Paul says. Go back to chapter one. He's still out there? Make some noise. Thank you. Chapter one. Look at verse 12. Paul says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now I would argue that Paul doesn't see God's hand necessarily in the struggle that has come his way. Paul sees God's hand where? And how God's used it. I'm not sure Paul is necessarily sitting there being grateful for the fact that he's in a prison cell potentially about to be executed. I don't think he's necessarily excited about that. What's got him excited? What God's done with it. It reminds me of something that he says actually later, somewhere else in the book of Romans. Romans chapter five, verse three. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, not only so, but we also glory or we celebrate, another way of saying that, we also glory or we celebrate in our sufferings. Y'all say in. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Notice that Paul doesn't say that we celebrate for our sufferings. No, he says we celebrate in them. There's a big difference there. Big difference between celebrating for the struggle that comes our way, but then celebrating in them. Here's, here's what I mean. Typically, when something bad happens, Something tragic, unexpected. When some sort of struggle comes either our way or, or along the way of somebody that we love, typically what you hear people say is this, everything happens for a reason. You ever heard that said before? I hear it said a lot. Everything happens for a reason. And I know that we mean well when we say that. I really do. But I gotta be honest. I'm beginning to have more and more of a problem with that line of thinking. Because on the one hand, you know what? It's not true. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. I understand you may passionately disagree with me on this. I don't care. That's fine. I welcome your emails. In fact, you can take me out to lunch. Buy me a burrito. We'll talk about it, okay? But hear me out when I say this. When we say that everything happens for a reason, here's what we're implying. We're implying that everything that happens in our world is the direct result of God's intentional will. Or simply put, God causes it to happen. Now tell me something. Do you really believe the God who looks like Jesus a God who dies for his enemies. Do you think a God like that makes things happen like genocide, rape, human trafficking? That God doesn't look like the God that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. I don't believe any of those things are the result of God's intended will. 
There's a, there's a difference between saying that everything happens for a reason and then believing that everything can be used for a purpose. There's a difference there. There's a difference between believing that everything happens for a reason and instead everything can be used for a purpose. The truth is, everything that happens in our world is not in line with God's intended will. In fact, there are plenty of things that happen every single day that are outside of God's will. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything into conformity with the purpose of his will. Tell me something. If God has to work something into conformity with his will, then doesn't that mean that at some point in time it wasn't in line with his will? Things happen all the time that are outside of God's will. The reality is most of the struggle we experience, most of the suffering in the world, you know where it comes from? Humanity's poor choices. I mean, if we, in a moment of honesty, if we were to look really hard that some of the things that are causing us discomfort in our life, we would find that we have a lot to do with it. Or it's the result of somebody else's bad decision. Human beings, we use our agency, our free will to do awful things all the time. Same time, scripture is very clear that, that, that there's a real enemy who opposes God and seeks to destroy us. A lot of what you and I experience, a lot of the struggle is a result of that too. At the same time, we live in a world that is not the way God wants it to be. There's a tear in the fabric of creation. I mean, there are things that happen all the time that are not in line with God's will. But hear me when I say this, it doesn't mean it can't be used for a greater purpose. And I think this is so important for us to grab a hold of. Here's what I want to say to some of you right now, though. Lean in with me for a second, if you will. God did not cause or allow your baby to die in order to make you stronger. That's not the God who looks like Jesus. God did not inflict that person you love or you with that diagnosis, that disease, in order to teach you a lesson. God did not cause your spouse to cheat on you and walk out on your family in order to get your attention. That abuse you experienced as a child, it was never and it will never be in line with God's will. But just because it wasn't in line with God's will doesn't mean it can't be used for a purpose. This is why this is so important for us because people who tend to operate with this belief that everything happens for a reason, they only ask one question. You know what question that is? Why? Why? But I'm going to tell you right now, we can spin our wheels for years on that question because sometimes there isn't an answer. But people who begin to realize that the God who looks like Jesus is the kind of God who can use anything for our good and for his glory, then we start asking another question, a better question, ultimately the question that matters. Not why, but what now? What now? And I would argue that this is the reason why the biggest reason why Paul can write to us a letter all about joy from a Roman prison cell is because his phronesis, his lens, the one thing Paul knows more than anything else, the lens through which he sees the world is he knows behind all of his struggle, behind all of the evil in the world, behind all of the discomfort and the conflict he's had to face, there's a God who ultimately has the final word over all of that. That in Jesus Christ, we have a God who has the last word and the final say. That there is nothing Jesus Christ cannot and will not use for our good and for his glory.
I'll show you what I mean. Look, look, look over at chapter two. Y'all better wake up for this. I'm serious. I know you're sad because both your teams lost. Get over it. <laughs> this right here is what matters. And sometimes I wish we could get, get alive about this. Man, feel it. Know it. This stuff can change everything. Paul says this in Philippians chapter two. He, he actually quotes a portion of what many believe to be the first, one of the first Christian hymns. It's verses five through 12, and it is packed full of all these profound truths about who Jesus is and what God has done in Jesus Christ. But I want to zero in on verses eight and nine. Towards the end of verse eight, Paul says this, speaking about Jesus, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see that there? Now, the common word for cross in the first century was the Latin word crux. Y'all try that out. Say crux. Crux. Now, in the first century, crux or cross was the ultimate symbol of shame, humiliation, and defeat. I mean, the cross was by far the most awful form of capital punishment that human beings have ever dreamed up. And the goal of the cross wasn't just to kill you, but it was to strip the person of every ounce of dignity on their way to death. It was all about shame and humiliation. And listen to what one Roman historian, Cicero, what he said about the cross. He said, far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, and the ears of a Roman citizen. When the cross was so bad, not only did you, you didn't want to experience it yourself, you didn't want to see it, you didn't want to talk about it, you didn't even want to think about it. That much shame. I mean, in our, in our day, saying the word crux for them would have been like saying a cuss word. This word would have gotten beeped out, censored, if somebody said it on TV. So it's like, man, he became obedient even to death, death on a boop. Imagine if this were still the case, like how some of our worship songs would sound, you know? Oh, the wider beep. See why I don't sing? But seriously, it's, it's shame. It's humiliation. This is like dropping the F-bomb. That's what it would have sounded like to people. Shocking. Even more shocking is what, what, what this hymn says next. Immediately after talking about crux, here's what it says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. I'm gonna read those two together one more time. It says, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, even death on a crux. Therefore, God exalted him. The word for exalted in the Greek is this word hyperhypsisim. It's really fun to say. I'm convinced a lot of three-year-olds have a case of hyperhypsisim, right? But it can mean adoration, exaltation. It's to be lifted up. It's to be glorified. It's to be honored. I mean, the first audience, the first people to hear this would have been shocked by it. How do you go from talking about crux, the ultimate symbol of shame, guilt, and defeat, how do you go from talking about that to hyperhypsism? I mean, what kind of God takes something like guilt and shame and turns it into adoration, exaltation, glory, to be lifted up? What kind of God is this? This would have been shocking for them. Truth is, it still should be shocking for us. What kind of God does this? You see, in the first century, you know, who, you know who the boss was, right? Who was it? Caesar. Caesar was the guy in charge. Caesar was the guy calling the shots. 
And if you didn't do what Caesar said, if you got out of line, if you didn't follow Caesar's rules, then he'd just crucify you, period. End of the sentence, right? The cross was the period at the end of Caesar's sentence. And so Jesus comes along, starts to cause some trouble, starts to disrupt the establishment, starts to break some of these rules. So what do you do with a guy like that? Well, you crucify him, right? Done deal, period, end of sentence. Not so fast. Because there are people like Paul and these first Christians, they didn't see it that way. That's what this hymn is about in Philippians chapter two. See, Caesar thought he had the last word and the final say by putting Jesus Christ on the cross. And sure, they may have killed him, but he didn't stay dead, did he? It was only a matter of time before Jesus, Jesus came back. And in doing so, he took that period at the end of Caesar's sentence and he turned it into a comma. You see, the people, early Christians believe this, that ultimately there is a God and it's not Caesar. There is a Lord and it's not Caesar. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took the ultimate form of guilt, shame, humiliation, and defeat, and he turned it upside down. And now what is the cross to us? When you look at the cross, what do you think about? Think about any of those things? It's an enduring symbol of hope, love, forgiveness, reconciliation. Many of you are wearing one around your neck. I'd be like people wearing an electric chair around their neck in the first century. Don't tell me my God can't redeem anything. God can redeem anything. Y'all believe that? Are you even hearing me? There's nothing that God cannot and will not use for your good and for God's glory. What would happen if we believed it? Some of us are living defeated lives right now. We've allowed some sort of struggle to dictate how we live. What we believe about is true. You want to, you want to experience the gospel? The first thing that's got to change is your phronesis, your lens, what you believe is possible. Man, that Jesus Christ, if Jesus can redeem the cross, then Jesus can redeem anything. Make no mistake, the cross didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happened to the cross. And now when we look at it, we're reminded of what God can do. And I'm telling you right now, this isn't just some sort of nice idea that desperate people believe in order to find some fictitious silver lining. And it's not a pipe dream either. That a bunch of crazy people believe in order to feel a little bit better about their miserable lives. You know what this is? This is a life-changing reality that countless people have experienced firsthand. And they have come to place their trust in this God who looks like Jesus. And not only has it changed people's lives, you know what else it's done? It's actually altered the course of human history on several occasions. I'll share with you one right now. Believe it or not, I'm a, I'm a big fan of history. I might be what you call a history nerd, mainly because it was like the only subject I excelled in in high school. That and lunch. But there's a particular period of history, and some of you are like, you really think this is history? Yes, I do. But it was the fall of, I'm so interested in this period, is the fall of Soviet communism that took place in the late 70s, into the 80s and the 90s. I'm so fascinated by this period of history, namely because the role the gospel played in the whole thing. And many people refer to this as one of the greatest spiritual movements of our day. And some of you remember how oppressive Soviet communism was, particularly when it came to issues of faith, religion, Spirituality, I mean, some of the most horrible things ever done to human beings were done under the, the rule and the reign of Soviet communism. And there's all this debate, discussion about, you know, who, who got the job done, 
right? Who, who actually brought about the fall of Soviet communism? All sorts of debate. Was it, was it Reagan? Was it Billy Graham? Who, who was it? Who was ultimately responsible for it? But what you don't find is a lot of debate around the moment, the event that actually got it started. Most historians are in agreement that what began the fall of Soviet communism was actually an event. It was a moment that took place in public. Pope John Paul II decided that he was going to go back home to his homeland of Poland, which was under Soviet rule, communism. He was going to go back and pay a visit to his people. Now, this put the communist leaders in a bit of a predicament. Because on the one hand, remember, they had outlawed all forms of religion and spirituality. So if the Pope comes, there's a good chance he's going to get everybody riled up, fired up, and could cause some problems for us. But at the same time, if they didn't let the Pope come, what kind of message does that communicate to the world? that they somehow see this little old man in a robe and slippers as a threat. There's people in power, they don't like to admit that, do they? And so they decided that they would let the Pope come. And this is what they figured. They figured that he was gonna come, he was gonna do his thing. Beginning of the week, people might get fired up, they might get excited, but eventually it's gonna die out. Everybody's gonna go back to their despair. Everybody's gonna go back to their hopelessness and they're gonna forget all about it. Boy, were they wrong. Because when the Pope showed up, Thousands of people met him and they lined the streets as he drove his little Pope mobile down the road. We got some pictures of, of this moment. Thousands of people came out to greet the Pope. And the crowds, they were electric. They were chanting things like, We want God. We want God. All this buzz, all this excitement. And the excitement, it reached its climax June 10th, 1979. Pope decided to offer a public mass in Blonny Field, just outside of Krakow. It's one of the biggest major cities in Poland. Now remember, the communist leaders thought that eventually this is all gonna die off, right? It's all gonna go away. People are gonna lose their interest. Again, they were wrong. By the time the Pope arrived in Blonny Field, there were somewhere between two and three million people there. You know it's a big event when the plus or minus is a million people, right? Two or three million people there. And it was there in that field on that day, he confronted communism head on. He shared a word. And in that word, he called out communism's attempt to kill off Poland's religious heritage, a country that had followed Jesus for over a thousand years. I want to share with you the, the end of his speech, what he said to them at the very end. But keep in mind, put yourself in their shoes. These are people who had civil liberties taken away, who had all forms of faith, religion, spirituality were outlawed. What would it be like to hear these words from the Pope? Here's what he says to them. He says, you must be strong with love, which is stronger than death. When we are strong with the spirit of God, we are also strong with the faith of man. There is therefore no need to fear. So I beg you, never lose your trust. Do not be defeated. Do not be discouraged. Always seek spiritual power from him whom countless generations of our fathers and mothers have founded. Never detach yourselves from him. Never lose your spiritual freedom. That was the moment when Soviet communism began to fall apart. Because the minute two to three million people start to believe that oppressive communism doesn't have the final word, then oppressive communism's in trouble. 
There's some of us in this room right now. We're going through something really hard. It feels like the bottom is falling out. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just hurts. We got to believe this. We have to know this. That ultimately, our God has the final word. And then there are some of us in this room right now, you know what? Life's pretty good. There's nothing really glaring. No no sense of struggle right now. We got to hear this word too, because guess what? It's coming. And so much of our ability to navigate these circumstances, these difficult things, this struggle that comes our way, has everything to do with our phronesis, our lens, with what we actually believe. And here's the truest thing I know, is that Jesus Christ has the last word and the final say. You see, our hope is in resurrection. You know what resurrection means? It means the worst thing that can happen to us, it's not the last thing that will happen to us. That ultimately God is gonna use everything. Nothing is out of his reach. Our God wastes nothing. Don't tell me it's not true. Because I guarantee you there's plenty of people in this room right now who testify to the fact that it is true. We felt like it was over. We felt like we were done. But it's in that moment the grace of God met us in a beautiful way. And what we found is that Jesus Christ can and does use everything for our good and for God's glory. Can I get an amen on that? And here in a moment, like I said, we're gonna give an opportunity not only to just hear this. These these are nice words, but we gotta encounter it. We have to experience it. So I want you to do is just take take a second, take a moment to prepare yourself for that. I wanna finish by leaving you with those words from the Pope. Maybe you're in the middle of something right now and it feels like it's too much. Pray these words with me. Make them your prayer. Hear these words. God, make us strong with love, which is stronger than death. Make us strong with the spirit of God so we can be strong with the faith of humanity as well. Remind us that there is therefore no need to fear. Empower us to never lose our trust, to not live defeated, to not be discouraged. May we always seek spiritual power from you whom countless generations of our fathers and mothers have founded. May we never detach ourselves from you. May we never lose our spiritual freedom. Amen.